Hey there, and welcome to Jeff Does Vegas 2022 in review. As the year comes to an end, I've decided to take a little trip back in time and reshare some of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months of the podcast. This time around on 2022 in review, I'm jumping into the archives and resharing conversations with some of the excellent content creators who I've had the pleasure of speaking with over the last year, including authors, vloggers, bloggers, and podcasters. It was awesome getting them all on the podcast to talk about Vegas and share their fantastic work with all of you. Enjoy. We begin with a trip back to episode number 105 of the podcast and my conversation with Adam Bauer, aka Travel Fanboy. I invited Adam to join me on the podcast to chat about some of the big changes coming to Vegas, including the sale of the Cosmo to MGM, the sale and rebrand of the Mirage to the Hard Rock, and the rebrand of Bally's to the Horseshoe. We began our conversation, though, by finding out how Adam initially got into blogging and creating Vegas content. I was in like my mid-20s. I was living in Detroit at the time. I had been a teacher for a while. Uh, an English teacher, but I was going back to school. I was getting a business degree and I was really, really kind of jonesing to learn more about like content marketing, online writing, that kind of thing really kind of piqued my interest. And I'd been a Vegas fan uh, forever since I was uh, a teen and my parents brought me there. Um, and uh, at the time, my wife was going through medical training, so she was always busy and she was very keen to let me do whatever it is I wanted to do to keep myself busy while you know she was working and training. And so Vegas just seemed kind of like the natural, fun kind of ploy for me to explore kind of content marketing, um, you know, online writing, that kind of thing, getting into kind of the blogosphere. So I started Vegas Fanboy uh, back then. That was 2014-ish, then in, in the, the, the mid-2000s, uh, those aughts. And uh, yeah, and it uh, kind of was a, it was more successful than I thought it was going to be. I think I found kind of a fun niche of you know, finding um, really appeasing to the low roller. That's what I was looking at um, because that's kind of how my Vegas experiences had, had kind of gone. Um, one of my favorite sites, Cheapo Vegas, uh, was kind of um, on the back burner. It wasn't really producing much content anymore. And so I kind of found uh, that kind of being a fun angle there and it, it kind of took off from there. And I can appreciate wanting to do that, that low roller um, side of things because, and, and that seems to be kind of common in a lot of the, the Vegas bloggers and, um, and content creators that I've talked to, because there's, if you Google Las Vegas vloggers or Las Vegas bloggers, there's these people out there that seem to have endless streams of income, or they are the influencers with all of the, the millions yeah. of Instagram followers. So they're getting everything for free. So I can 100% appreciate when somebody is doing something that is really kind of right up my alley. I mean, when you're talking about $7.99 steak and eggs at Ellis Island or the $5.99 lunch menu at Ocean One, I mean, that is, that's right in my wheelhouse. So I can appreciate that. Yeah. And I've, hey, I'll admit, I've always paid for everything. I've never let a casino pay for anything for me, uh, spare like a comp or something like that. But yeah, I think that was, and a lot of people are like that too, right? And that's when you know, their early memories of Vegas or going to Vegas when they're, you know, they're, they're twenties, early thirties, and they're kind of trying to, you know, save here or there. But I would say that it, it evolved a little bit because it wasn't, and it hasn't been just kind of finding the, the very 
inexpensive type things. It's about really trying to maximize the value that you get out of it too, because there's some really cool experiences. They can cost some money, uh, but you know, it's kind of weeding out like what's worth it, right? What's worth spending a few more dollars on, or how do you get this really nice room uh, at the most kind of inexpensive price out of pocket? It's kind of finding those angles, which is always a lot of fun too. And I assume that being that you were a somewhat frequent Vegas visitor, much like myself, you were probably getting hit up for ideas and questions all the time by friends or family or coworkers or people who were going to Vegas. And I know that was kind of, for me, that was almost sort of the genesis of, of the podcast in, in that I thought, you know what, people are always asking me for all these things. I assume that they're, you know, my friends aren't the only ones who have these questions. So if I can put it out there to the general world, it, it might be able to, to, to become something. Oh yeah, it definitely was. And for me too, it was, I was always kind of thinking about my next Vegas trip. And I think a lot of people that you and I know in our circles are like that too. And so it was, how do I take this energy that I have? And I'm uh, wasting it. I'm putting that in air quotes, you know, online, looking at websites and and looking at, you know, the, the casino sites and stuff. And I might as well put this effort into something and put it out there because I'm, I'm doing it anyway um, and sharing what I find. And uh, that was, that was always a fun part of, of building up the site and being a part of the community too. I know from my own experience, half of the time I'm usually sitting at the airport waiting to get on my next flight home when I'm already starting to plan out my hotels and look at dates right. and look at, look at my next trip. So I, I, I think that that's a pretty, uh, a pretty common thing for, I think for those of us that are kind of in this, this circle, but it, but for everyone in general, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, and I, I try to have a, a level head about it. I mean, there's so many people out there that know far more about Vegas than I ever will, but I think, uh, you know, people like you and me and the other content creators is we just kind of had the audacity to go out there and, and put it online and get some thick skin and get ready for some feedback. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the fun part about it too. Over the last several years, there's been a push in the travel industry for people to practice what's called responsible travel which is basically making choices to minimize the negative impacts of your travel in favor of those that are either neutral or contribute positively. On episode number 127, I was joined by Aaron Hines and Katie Lore, the hosts of Alpaca My Bags, a Canadian podcast that goes in-depth in exploring the idea of responsible travel. Aaron and Katie shared their own Las Vegas experiences with me. We talked about what got them into podcasting and focusing on responsible travel. And we discussed how to apply the principles of responsible travel to a city like Las Vegas, best known for total irresponsibility. There's two big ones that stand out to me. I think first, you can make your trip educational. Um, Vegas has such a fascinating history and there are so many museums where you can learn about this history, like the Mob Museum. There's also the Nevada State Museum, the Burlesque Museum, which I really loved. There's tons of them. You could go to Vegas and spend like three days straight just going to museums. Um, I think at least personally, education is a big part of travel for me. I find it really fun to learn like the history of places and also just learning about like cultural and social history of a place. Um, so yeah, there's tons of resources to do that in Vegas. So even if you're going to party, just take like one afternoon and hit up one museum just so you leave Vegas with like a little bit of knowledge that you didn't have before. 
And then another one that I think you can definitely do in Vegas is support diverse businesses while you're there. Um, a lot of the options are chain, like chain hotels and chain restaurants. Um, but don't be discouraged by that because literally just wander a couple couple blocks off. I mean, I'm saying just wander a couple blocks. It's going to be far. But if you're willing to explore off the strip, um, you can definitely find like locally owned restaurants um, where you can have a bit more of a personal experience and make sure that your tourism dollars are going towards local people. Um, what about you, Katie? Do you have anything to add? I would just say... Um specifically in Vegas, like there's so much to see, right? Use your eyes and your and your brain to kind of answer some questions that may come up for you, like around po- the poverty that we see. And maybe you see, you know, there's escalators everywhere, but how are wheelchairs supposed to get up over there? You know, there's lots of different things that you can kind of notice when the, within a city, no matter where you are, that you can just kind of, that just pop into your head as questions. Erin said this on the podcast before, but when she's in a place uh, and there's some weird questions that come up for her. She writes them in uh, the notes app on her phone, and then we'll head back to her hotel room and Google them and see what people are saying about these things. So that's one option that you can do is just, just note down the questions that come up for you, especially in a place like Vegas that has so much character and so much history and so many things going on, and then take the time to really explore those questions Uh, because that might bring up some other thoughts for you that you might want to be an advocate for. So those are my thoughts. I'm really happy that you mentioned museums, Aaron, as a a way to be a responsible traveler uh, or a responsible tourist, if you will. Uh, My wife and I are huge museum nerds. And anytime we go anywhere, um, we try and find some sort of museum that we think is going to be interesting to us to, to learn something about the area that we're in. And, uh, you mentioned some of the ones that Las Vegas has there. There of course is the mob museum downtown, which is just absolutely incredible and goes deep into that mob history. Um, there's also the national atomic testing museum, which is just off the strip and goes into uh, Nevada and Las Vegas's nuclear history, which is really, really interesting. And then one of my favorites, the South end of the strip uh, is the pinball hall of fame and museum. If you're into classic arcade games or classic pinball machines at all, it's one that you, you really do want to check out. It's really, really cool. Um, so again, museums, maybe not something that people think of as a way to be a responsible tourist. So again, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Oh, yeah. I'm also a big museum fan. So I'm excited for our next trip because I'm going to go to a couple that I haven't been to, including the Atomic Museum. I'm now curious about this. I'll also add, because Jeff, you had mentioned, you know, this is a place where people come to be irresponsible. Um, I would say specifically to their wallets and specifically to their livers. Um, and on that note, you can be a responsible traveler in just, you know, being responsible to yourself. It doesn't mean you don't like don't party as hard as you're planning on, but at least at the very least, Try and book a day off when you come home so that you can rest and recuperate instead of just flinging into your everyday life. Uh, Because Vegas, in my experience, is a lot. It's a lot of things flying at you all at once. It's a lot to absorb, especially as like a little humble Canadian. So you come home and there's like a, a serious like recovery time from traveling, at least for me in most cases. So like think about what your needs are when you're going to come home and give yourself some time to rest and recover before you go back into your regular job life and have to deal with the stresses of being on Zoom calls all day. So just 
be responsible to yourself and listen to your body and what it needs and stock your fridge uh, full of vitamin things because they're hard to come by on in the Vegas and everything's deep fried. So make sure you got some like good vitamin thingies, like vegetables, some fruits, go to the Walgreens on the Vegas strip and pay a zillion dollars for something that just has vitamin C in it because it'll it'll help you. It'll help you. Formula One is considered to be one of the premier forms of auto racing. Not only are the cars they use the fastest regulated road racing cars in the world with top speeds upwards of 350 kilometers an hour, but F1 is also one of the richest sports in the world, pulling in annual revenues of over $2 billion. And in November of 2023, the big show comes to the Las Vegas Strip. Back in episode number 112, I was joined by Todd McCandless, host of the Park Fermi podcast, a long-running F1-centered podcast that goes deep into the world of Formula One racing. Todd and I talked about the impact that F1 would have on Las Vegas, both positive and negative, shared some thoughts on the track layout, and we discussed the so-called drive-to-survive effect that's ignited interest in F1, particularly in the United States. That's had the biggest impact, certainly here in the States, because um, up until that came out, it, it was a um, it was a collision of a lot of different things. COVID lockdown, and there's a lot of people sitting at home just binging stuff on Netflix, and they stumble across Drive to Survive. I don't know how many people have written me saying, oh my gosh, I just got into Formula One and I just found your podcast. This is amazing. And they were like, and I was just binging. We we're in lockdown. I was just binging. I watched Drive to Survive and I was absolutely hooked. Um, up until that point, I will tell you, Jeff, that honestly, a lot of the conventional wisdom in Formula One, it was like, well, you know, the millennials, they're just not into cars. You know, they're into gadgets. They're into social media. They don't drive as much. They're not into cars. They really don't care about car racing. They're more into stick and ball sports or, or you know, their iPhones or whatever it might be. <clears throat> and I kept wondering, I, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> you know, I, as a disservice to millennials and certainly Gen Z, but I'm thinking, at the end of the day, um, I really don't care who you are, but if you stand right next to the track and feel, not hear, but feel one of those cars go by at 200 miles an hour and feel the ground shake, it, yeah, you'll, you'll wake up in a hurry. And, and it's, it, it's just incredibly impressive. And because of the technology being so uh, advanced in Formula One, it's got a real appeal. But you're right, Jeff. It's the drama. It's seeing the personalities come alive, not only the drivers, but the team bosses and the regulatory body and, and seeing the conflict and friction and that drama. And people love that because at the end of the day, um, the best people to cover a sport are still the legacy Formula One journalists, the new F1 journalists, the, the legacy F1 journalists are great at it because they tell stories. And ultimately, that's what we want. Yeah, you know what? That makes perfect sense. I will freely admit that my interest in Formula One 
was reignited thanks to Drive to Survive. We were in a similar situation. It was lockdown. We were stuck at home. We were trying to find stuff to watch on Netflix. We'd already blown through all of the Tiger King. So we were we were done with that. <laughs> and a friend of ours actually said, hey, you you kind of are interested in car racing. You should watch this Drive to Survive. So we did, and we were instantly hooked. We blew through the first two seasons of Drive to Survive in like a week, maybe a week and a half. And at that point, the 2021 racing season was just getting underway. So we started watching the races. We watched the races. We watched the qualifying. I'd watch the practice sessions. My wife and I would talk about F1. It, it was an absolute blast. So it it really did reignite that interest for us in formula one and get us brought into that world. And, and I mean, yes, I had that connection as a child watching it with my grandfather, but at that time I didn't really get it. And now I'm into learning about the personalities and the drivers and the team principles and, and even the strategies and the rules and things like that. So I've gone deep into that. And to your point about um, millennials, not really being interested in, in cars and car racing per se, I think that's accurate, but what they are interested in is technology. And with so many of the drivers now, like Lando Norris and Max Verstappen getting involved in um, in e-racing and uh, being involved in Twitch streaming and, and racing online and as active as they are on social media, that's where they're going to bring that that Gen Z and millennial audience in and get them interested. They may not be as interested in the cars per se, but they're definitely interested in what's going on around the cars. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt because it's uh and really like Lando appeals to Gen Z, you know, he's a young guy and Twitch streams and uh certainly he, Esteban Ocon, um, Alex Albon, uh Yuki, all these really young guys uh in the sport that appeal now to the back end of millennial and really the the head end of the the Gen Z. Um but you, but Jeff, you're you're a great case study in that there was a lot of question in media and social media about the drive to survive effect, as they call it. So the DTS effect is you went out, you've been, you've been creative with your script writing and, and how you're editing and, and what you're putting together. Um, that was the criticism this year. I get it, but at some level it does need to be entertaining. And as long as it isn't too egregious, you know, you have some creative Liberty, but, uh, there was a lot of concern about whether the people who got hooked on Drive to Survive and really started checking out F1, would they be turned off quickly to the sport if every race wasn't as exciting as a DTS episode? Whereas like first season, they're going crazy on the episode trying to get that Haas into 14th place, which doesn't mean a damn thing right. in a race, right? And so the question is, is it too overhyped and was it a letdown to people like you, Jeff, that started watching the series and going, well, this isn't anything like the DTS. You know what? For me, it was almost kind of the opposite effect mm. in that I watched season one and season two of Drive to Survive without having watched the associated F1 seasons. So I didn't really necessarily realize 
how much dramatization went into the TV series. I mean, obviously, it's a reality show. They're going to do some creative editing. They're going to try to hype things up a little bit, make it a little bit more exciting. Completely understandable. Anybody that's ever watched reality TV understands that that's how that works. But having watched all of the 2021 race season, basically from top to bottom, Then watching season three of Drive to Survive and seeing exactly how much they manipulated the show to make it more interesting, whether it was manufacturing this rivalry that doesn't exist between Daniel Ricardo and Lando Norris, or whether it's trying to make Nikita Mazepin look like some sort of master strategist for coming in ahead of everybody else to change over to the wet tires when the rain started during the Russian Grand Prix, and then making a big deal about him finishing in P18 instead of dead last, as he usually did, but neglecting to mention the fact that there were two cars that didn't finish the race. I kind of wonder to a degree if... DTS has become a victim of its own success in that people who watch the actual race season will now see how manipulated the TV series is. Yeah, I think, Jeff, I think you're spot on. I think people felt like that this last season maybe jumped the shark a little bit on the creative license um, and was sort of fabricating elements of the season that wasn't quite there. Um, And I think they run a very fine line there. I think you'll see the next season they're going to have to they'll have heard this and they'll have to they'll have to reel it back in a little bit and make sure they're a little more true to form. But to that point, Jeff, it did its job Then, then it. It wasn't the hook. It was the bait on the hook. And the actual series itself, despite the lack of outrageous and egregious prolific passing, has hooked you more than the DTS. And that is actually music to F1's ear because, you know, they want you to be hooked on the series. DTS is almost like the loss leader, right, in sales. So, you know, they want you to get hooked on the series and not expect that level of drama and excitement and entertainment value and manufactured drama uh, in the actual races, because it doesn't exist. You know, is there drama? Of course, there's drama in the paddock, but it's, yeah, not the same. Have you ever been in a casino sitting at a table playing and wondered, what's the dealer thinking right now? Eric Sherwood is the guy who can tell you. Eric, who joined me on episode number 116 of the podcast, is the author of the book Delt, Stories from My Life on the Felt, and the guy behind the Twitter account, Annoyed Pit Boss. We discussed his entry into the gaming industry, he shared some tips and tricks for novice players hitting the casino for the first time, and he talked about what inspired him to start tweeting and to write the book. Twitter tells me that I joined January of 2012 which I knew it was around 2012, but I would have never remembered like what month or whatever, but that's what Twitter is telling me. So yeah, I started, it's about two years into me dealing. I started, you know, I, I launched Twitter and, and I don't even know. I, I honestly don't know besides like, Hey, let me, you know, I, I just want to we just deal with all like just these crazy people, crazy stories. And I'm like, you know, and I think I had been maybe tweeting some out on just like my regular Twitter account. And then I was like, you know, I should start like some kind of, uh, you know, annoyed casino dealer or something. So I just kind of started it. And I, you know, I, I just would tweet out just 
stuff here and there a couple times a week or whatever. And it, you know, and I said, I'm obviously it's been 10 years since that, you know, since I opened that account, but it just grew organically really over the years into, you know, I think I'm, I'm fine. You know, I'm nearing 10,000 followers, but I mean, it's taken 10 years and it really took a lot to get started that first year or so. It was just kind of me tweeting to like avoid, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't much out there of, of me, of, of anybody coming back, but then it just, you know, started growing and following other people and they'd follow me back and it just ended up becoming this thing. And then, you know, you get Twitter is cool in that you, you find that, that niche, that's that community that's on Twitter. And, you know, we're in that gambling community where, you know, you see all these, you know, you see the gamblers and people that are doing podcasts and, you know, know, the casino. So you, you kind of get in that community and that's when it really, uh, really took off. So, you know, and from that point, I think when I started tweeting things out, you know, I I think what, what was Twitter back then? A hundred? in 20 characters. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They they like extended it. Yeah. But so like, you know, you couldn't really get too many off or whatever, but I started just basically keeping notes and, you know, everybody, you know, in our industry and I had coworkers that'd be like, I'm going to write a book someday. And it always like stuck with me. And I was like, well, I'm going to write that book. So, you know, it always took me to like, you know, let's, so I, I took notes and just started kind of writing things down on like my phone, like the, the notes app on my phone on breaks and stuff. And, you know, I'd have like a name for that person and remember to tell the story on that one. And it just kind of started from there. And, and I mean, it was a slow process, obviously, because these stories are from when I dealt and I dealt for five years. So, you know, I became a pit boss in around 2014, 15. So, and these stories are all from back then. So they're, they're old stories, really. But yeah, it just took me forever. What was the, the original intent behind creating the Twitter account and, and moving on to the book? Was it just a case of um, needing somewhere to vent? I, I mean, I know I've worked with the public. I've done call center work and retail work and frontline work. So, so I know how terrible people can be. Was it just a case of needing to have a place to get those stories out and share them with people that have gone through similar stuff. Oh yeah. And that's exactly it. It, It's like, I just need, I needed an outlet. And at the same time, you know, obviously maybe this will take off and be big someday was always in the back of my head. But you know, when you're tweeting out to people and you have like three followers, it's like, "Mm, this is, you know, this is, I mean, it it could have died real quickly. It just, you know, to to keep that going and, and to keep it up was, um, is, is difficult. And it was, I'm kind of surprised I did it to be honest, but yeah, it was to kind of just have that outlet and vent, vent to people. And then, you know, to write it, it was like, cause you don't, you know, when you go out and you even like Google casino book, you know, you can find a thousand and one books on how to beat the house. Oh, how to win at Baccarat, how to win at roulette, how to, you know, how to count cards, how to do this. There's a million and a half books on, on how to beat the house when it's like all ridiculous to be, to be honest, mm. you know, and there's a book on how to win at slots. And it's like, uh, you know, so, but you don't, I never saw a book from like a, you know, a dealer. Now you'd see gamblers write books on their experiences and, and things like that, but I never really saw any kind of dealer book or, you know, casino employee book where they would give stories out like that. So my idea, instead of just writing like a novel and things like that was to just kind of do a collection of short stories. And that's where it kind of started from that. And I mean, I wrote some of these stories way back in 2012 and 13. And there was times when I'd write like about for about a year 
And then I wouldn't look at it for like a year and a half. Right. And I'd go back and write some more and just kind of, and then I had, a, I had like 50,000 words sitting there for a long time and just kind of never really, like, I think when I started self-publishing wasn't even a thing. I don't think so. You know, it, like I didn't, you know, it was like, I have to go through the pub, getting a publisher and all that. So I figured that was going to take, you know, forever if I ever got that to that point, but yeah, it just, so I, it just slowly was writing stories down and it just, yeah, it, it was just all an outlet. And I, and I like to say, um, yeah, like you talk about working with the public sucks. Anybody that works with the public, like you said, in retail or whatever, or worked at a fast food store, you know, that working with the public sucks. Well, for the most part, you're in the casino. So you're not only working with the general public, you're probably working with like, and, and not every gamblers that, you know, there's people that truly go out and they are there for entertainment and they're good people and whatever, but like, it's kind of like the lower, you know, drudge of society is like <laughs> hanging out at the casino every day and the, the regulars anyway. So it's like, you kind of have that, like the lower form of, of, uh, you know, some come, some criminals come in from time to time that I know I've dealt to. <laughs> so like, you know, you kind of have that, like the lower end of the public uh, that you're dealing to. And then they're losing hundreds and thousands of dollars. Right. And there's nobody of them. There's nobody there to yell at besides you. Right. So like you get, we get the brunt of it, you know, they're not going to yell at themselves, at least not in front of us. So, you know, so yeah, you just get the brunt of it. And it's a a dynamic that I don't think is, you can duplicate like anywhere else. There's nothing I love more than having fellow Vegas content creators on the podcast. I love learning about what got them interested in Las Vegas and what drives them to share their passion for the city we love so much. Julian Romero is the host of the Vegas Confessions podcast, which I can honestly say is one of the best Las Vegas podcasts out there. Julian and I went in depth on what got him into podcasting, how he's managed to turn his passion into a full-time gig and what he loves about being a Vegas podcaster. Word of mouth is big. Your reputation is key. And, you know, the people you know and the handshakes you make in this city, because it's so small, people think it's so big. It's really small and it's a tight-knit community of people who know everybody within the industry, especially like the casinos and restaurants. And when you know somebody... They know a person that knows a person, they know a person. And it leads to so many different connections, Jeff, that I'm somebody who I'm baffled that every day, like no matter if we tweet on social media or whatever it is, the casinos always interact, you know, a lot. and I find that stuff pretty cool because even as, you know, not to say I'm a step above anybody else, but even when people see it, like, you know, just the regular average Joe, they're like, Hey, that's cool that, you know, this casino does that, or this guy's out there showing people place at different places and the casinos acknowledge that he's doing this. And that's the whole point is, Hey, I want to show you guys what these casinos have to offer and the different amenities, whether it's a meal, whether it's the pool, whatever you're into the new rooms, the new hotel, there's so much to do in this town. It's hard to keep track on it. And that's when I realized, you know what? There's actually people that will listen to a stupid podcast about Vegas. And holy shit, Jeff, if I didn't see downloads come in like crazy. And over the last few years, since it's just been me and my wife, just nonstop coming like crazy, coming out to Vegas and going to different restaurants and giving reviews on 
you name it, shows, anything to do in town, the downloads have been phenomenal. And it's crazy because we'll be at a craps table just throwing dice and, hey, let me get a hard eight, you know? Are you Jay? Yeah, I'm Jay. What's up, man? How you doing? Oh, I listen to your fucking podcast. The other day at Alice Island. This is, these are the great moments that make all of this rewarding when we're sitting there talking into a microphone by ourselves, right? Like, those are the re- rewarding moments when, you know, there's a guy at the end of the craps table who's about almost 6'5", and he's big old muscular dude, and he's throwing the dice, and he cashes out. And, you know, I'm getting ready to place my next pass line bed and get ready to go. And he comes over and he's like, hey, Jay, love the podcast, man. He didn't say a word the whole time for an hour, right? But then afterwards, it's like, hey, Jay, love the podcast. Love what you and Kelly do. I'm like, what the hell? Like, that's the reward. And they're like, hey, by the way, we just went to Esther's Kitchen. And you're right. It was freaking great. The fact that these people will take time out of their trip to do any kind of recommendation that my dumb ass says means the world to me. <laughs> I totally get that and and totally understand what you're saying. I know... Um, when I first started doing this podcast, it, it was, it was just a hobby. It was a fun little passion project. And it was just something that I wanted to do because going to Vegas as often as I was, I'd kind yeah. of become the de facto Vegas expert amongst my group of friends. And I thought, yeah. well, if my friends are asking me questions and want to know about <laughs> stuff, maybe random strangers on the internet might want to as well. And you know what, <laughs> if I get like a thousand people download yeah. my podcast. I'm going to be thrilled with that. Yes. And and 4 years later and 160,000 almost 160,000 downloads here we are and I'm like this just continues to blow my mind every single time I see another 1000 get added to the list. And yeah. I remember the first time I got a either a DM on Twitter or an email from someone who said Hey, I listened to your trip report episode and you talked about such and such a restaurant and we went and we loved it. And I just want to thank you for that. It's like, wow, that is the coolest thing yeah. in the history of ever. A total stranger, as you said, mm-hmm. took a recommendation yeah. that my dumbass threw out there and, yeah. <laughs> and just thought like, wow, somebody actually cares about what I'm saying. And, and that's the kind of thing that really gets me. It's the kind of thing that keeps me going in, in yes. doing this is it i'm assuming it's the same for you guys it's a hundred percent and then jeff it goes to a whole nother level like like i said I, it started with the podcast and then i was like hey a little bit a few uh, years when i first started coming i was like under the impression oh, i'll start vlogging but i just never did it i went with more with the podcast route well after the pandemic during the pandemic more or less i started to pick it back up i'm like you know what People love to listen about Vegas, obviously, because the downloads are great. Let's start showing people. Let's start showing people this food that I'm telling them about. Let's start showing them what these places look like that I'm describing these clubs like the Phoenix that's painted by a local artist inside and out from every inch of the place, right? And you could only do so much by telling a person, but then you show them and you can start doing these little tricks and stuff in your edits where you start actually producing a decent video and you're like hey this is actually really good i like this and then you start getting people who actually watch and then you're here jeff and they're like hey jay i know you're in town i want to come spend some time with you are you going to be downtown at all like whoa 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 you're coming to vegas for two days and you can do anything you want with your time and you want to hang out with me like dude i will find your ass we'll go have a meal we're gonna do something like we're gonna have fun we'll go gamble we'll go do whatever you want but you want to hang out, let's go hang out. And that's what 
it's been, Jeff, I've been here on this recent trip. I've been here three weeks now. Every night I go out, I tell my wife, she's like, so what are you going, where are you going tonight? Downtown? I'm like, you know, that's my spot. I've been downtown every night. That's my comfort zone. And I meet up with somebody that's a listener, a friend I happen to walk into. There's never plans made. But at the end of the night, we're always hanging out with somebody and we're having a meal by the end of the night, capping it off. That's the biggest reward in doing all of this you can ask for. Again, turning a hobby into a full-time fun thing to do for the rest of our lives, right? Like, and, and again, we've talked about it. There's people who have a passion for doing stuff they love to do. And then there's people, you know, that just love to do it. And the ones that love to do it will always be the ones that'll make people come back for that next listen or find out what that next report's like, or, Hey, what was that next restaurant they went to like that they were talking about? And so excited to check out. Right. So it does something to a listener where, and again, I got to give a huge kudos to, you know, Shane and Eric, who were a big part of this podcast. When we first started, we again, got together, wanted to talk about different ideas and stories. And then we brought in Eric who knew a lot about like the casino inside stuff, which was great. And then, you know, my wife came on and we just started, we started going ham at Vegas. We're like, we can do this. We can visit. It's not that far away for us. I mean, we can make this happen. We have the comps. If we keep it smart and we do it right, we can do it free. We, you know what I mean? We can work the system. So we're basically all we're paying is, is for gas to get there and the food and everything's included, depending on where we eat, you know, if we're eating at our hotel and stuff. But yeah, it's, it, it really does set the people apart who really, have a passion for doing stuff that they like to do and people who like to do it. So as somebody who's always loved this, I mean, I never turned down the opportunity to turn uh, chat about Vegas or meet somebody here or whatever we're doing, a group meetup. I come out to people's weddings that they've invited us to. I mean, it, it's been a hell of a community. I mean, I've traveled the country going across the country to drive my daughter's car to college and, you know, I stopped at friends in Texas's house that I met here in Vegas 10 years ago to stay the night just because they knew I was coming. And lo and behold, they decided, no, nope, you're not going to come to the house, Jay. We're going to get our RV and we're going to go camp out on one of the lakes out here, the biggest lakes. And we're going to take you out on our boat, jet skis, and we're going to have the time of your life for a night while you're here in Texas. That's the reward in doing all of this stuff. Like, I can't express it enough. And again, if you have a passion for creating and whether it's video audio any kind of content if it's social media whatever always thrive always try to get better because i mean jeff i bs you not brother there's not a day today where i'm not trying to learn watch youtube videos on audio uh getting better quality you know why am i finding a hum in my my ear in my feedback like it doesn't matter whether it's audio or video if i have the moment and time to sit down and watch and potentially learn something new I take the chance to every day because I feel like once you feel like you've mastered something, it's time to move on. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, again, I, I love this. And again, for any creators out there, follow what you do, keep, stick to what you do. And Jeff, you're a perfect example. You're, you're, you're right there. You're into it four years. You're starting to see the benefits of it and that there is people who listen at the end of the day. And like you said, when they reach out, you can't ask for more as a reward. It, it's, it makes all of this fun hobby worth it. Thanks for joining me on this little trip down memory lane as we revisited some of my favorite conversations with some awesome content creators. 
If you want to check out the full episodes, you can find the links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com or search them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 